Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? And the second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. On this edition of Restoring the Soul, we're taking a deep dive into the archives for the first ever interview produced for the podcast. We kicked off the podcast on July 21st, 2016. We're 126 episodes later and celebrating nearly 800,000 downloads since then. The interview you'll hear today is one Michael conducted with Pete Scazzaro, and it's near the top as one of our favorites, and we believe will still be relevant 50 years from now. After leading New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, New York for 26 years, Pete Scazzaro co-founded Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, a groundbreaking ministry that moves the church forward by slowing the church down in order to multiply deeply changed leaders and disciples. Pete hosts the top-ranked Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast and is the author of a number of best-selling books, including The Emotionally Healthy Leader and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. I wanted to start out by uh, by hearing a little bit about your story. I know that the big focus of what you do is teaching about how our spiritual and emotional lives get out of balance and how that plays out in unhealthy spirituality and the body of Christ, and uh, that 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 imbalance is really kind of causing a crisis in the body of Christ. So. All of that focus that you do grew out of your own crisis, so to speak, yes. of faith. Tell us about that. I became a Christian at uh, 19 and was got involved in, in varsity Christian Fellowship and other parachurch ministries and eventually uh, went to seminary and spent a year in Central America and then planted a church in uh, September 1987 and in the inner city of New York. And it was a, we grew very fast. I, I was your, I was an evangelical poster child, I like to say. I, that was <laughs> me, you know. And, and so, you know, I, I consumed everything within our evangelical tradition about formation, discipleship, Bible study, fellowship. And so the church began to grow. And, and, uh, but I found myself after four, five, six years realizing something's really wrong here because I was exhausted, first of all. I was very tired. Secondly, um, I realized people were changing, but not changing deeply. 
and they were changing skin deep. Now, our environment in the inner city of New York, very multiracial, very multi-ethnic, and you bring together people from various cultures and races together. You put them in a community and try to live that out. Unless there's profound change, uh, it's going to be very challenging to live as a body of Christ. And uh, But I realized that uh, as I was trying different discipleship paradigms, the word, uh, spirit's power, prophetic ministry, worship, more small groups, ministry to the poor, prayer, you name it, I realized people still weren't changing deeply. And I said, something's not right. Hmm. And then, so I, I was wrestling with this for really a few years. And as I was growing tired, my wife grew very tired. And uh, she was tired of being a single mom. We have four four young girls at the time. And uh, then we had a split in uh, one of our congregations in Spanish. And so I got very disillusioned with that. So in 1994, uh, I found myself, this is seven years after planning the church. I, I was I was really wanting to get out. I, I was I was angry. I was tired. I was cursing the car like a truck driver toward <laughs> this fellow who had I felt betrayed me, had split off with a couple hundred people. I didn't know what to do with all my anger and rage. And so I started going to counseling. And at the time I didn't even believe in Christian counseling, but I said, Hey, I'm in such a mess right now, I'll go somewhere. But I I really the biggest thing is I didn't know what to do with all this rage inside. I mean un, and 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 unforgiveness and confusion. And so I started an inward journey in 1994. I'm not the kind of guy that would do a natural inward journey. I'm just a you know, type A, let's go do it. Let's You're a New Yorker. Happen, New Yorker. <laughs> and, you know, a good Christian leader who's going to build a church and make this thing go. And so we were, we were planting churches. I mean, we were planting churches, you know, a number of churches here in New York City. Um, but uh, God got my attention through depression, through just, just my, my anger. And through, so going to counseling, I started looking at myself on the inside, started reading different kinds of authors like Allender and others and, and Roman Catholics and more contemplative type stuff and started to look at what was going on inside of me. Maybe I'm the problem. That was a new, that was a new idea. That was a novel idea. And then for two years, I was really on an inward journey and I was really seeing some of the holes in my evangelical theology. There was some big problems in how we do discipleship. And so I was really doing theological work. I've been a pastor. I'm not a therapist. I'm like, what's missing here? What, what, how is it that I got into this situation where I, I, my, I almost could, you know, lose my marriage and lose leadership or even let's walk away from Jesus. I was so disgusted with the church and I was trying to figure out what was going on because I did feel the hand of God on I me. Mean, I felt God's pleasure, but I couldn't figure out why everything was going so poorly. Hmm. January 1st, January 2nd, 1996, my wife comes to me and she says, Pete, uh, I'm leaving the church. I'm going to another church. And your, your church? My church. Yeah, she's le she left my church. She said, your leadership stinks. You don't have the courage to confront people that need to be confronted. And so I'm going to another church. And that was like the bomb. Wow. So that was when I would say the rock bottom hit. And in our case, she said, uh, you know, I'm going to move back to New Jersey. And uh, I'm like, wow, New Jersey. Uh, so <laughs> can anything good come out of New Jersey? Isn't it? No, Nazareth. Sorry. Nazareth. That's <laughs> it. So we went to a place for fallen pastors because we needed help desperately. And we had to sort this out. So I, I so we went for a week. And during that week, it was two counselors and just Jerry and I and and we went there really to kind of fix – I went to fix her. She went to fix the church. But really, they focused on our marriage. And that was a shocker because we mm -hmm. were 
we really had never focused on our marriage. Our marriage was about building the kingdom of God, you know, and and we had a love for each other. We just didn't know how to love each other. We 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 never got discipled in our marriage. We just figured, hey, we're Christians, we love Jesus, it's all gonna work out just fine. And during that week, uh God just came. And it was just it was like being born again again. Wow. And my two years of reflecting on what was wrong theologically, it all came together. And it, very simple, it's that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. That you can't say you're spiritually mature if you're emotionally immature. And I realized I was a senior pastor of a decently large church, and I was an emotional infant. Wow. My own wife didn't feel loved by me. And here I am under the illusion, I'm going to raise up mothers and fathers out of faith that are going to make an impact for the kingdom of God. So that was the beginning of this whole journey into emotionally healthy wow. spirituality. Let me just stop you right there yeah. and say how refreshing it is to hear uh, a pastor, much less a, a, a public author, writer like yourself, to talk so honestly about you know your own brokenness. And um, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you, is I think there's great, great, great power in that, to be able to say that uh, how I've been doing my faith and my walk with Jesus really doesn't connect with my life, my emotional life. So out of your own brokenness, this movement has been launched. Tell us about what that movement looks like. Well, I don't know about a movement. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I just, our, our goal initially was just to try to walk it out ourselves. This is 1996. You understand, like, we, we felt like we'd left the shore, like trying to integrate some of these things like leading out of brokenness, embracing limits, loving well as the measure of maturity, uh, doing family of origin work as part of your discipleship, as okay. integral to discipleship, breaking the power of the past, you know, d- deeply looking inside at your motives, your fe- learning to feel, offering after Christ. These are all radical concepts at the time for us. So we said, we got to start walking this out. And we decided we're going to, we're going to minister and we're going to lead out of our marriages, our marriage and out of a cup running over. We'd never sacrifice our marriage again. We're going to love Jesus, take care of ourselves and love each other and our kids. And after that, the church, I mean, and, and if the minute, our cup ceased overflowing, we would resign and go do something else. Uh, because God never asked us to die to a wonderful marriage. And we tasted heaven in our marriage, and we weren't going to lose that again. Hmm. And so uh, I didn't write anything for, for seven years, actually. I, I, just, I just kept basically um, like good wine, you know, just aging it. Hmm. And so I wrote The Emotionally Healthy Church in 2003, and uh, it came out the same time as Purpose Driven Life. And I, I'm an un, I was an unknown guy from Queens. And so I, but I had a friend who worked at Zondervan and he was an editor and he'd been following our journey for a long time. He says, Pete, I, I think this, you know, it's worth writing, but I want you to know that it's going to be, you know, there's no advertising dollars about this thing. It's just, it's, a, it's, a, we don't, I, I can't tell you anything's going to happen with it, but I think it's a good message. And so once you put in writing this, your story in Emotionally Healthy Church and this integral discipleship you're talking about, so I wrote it, and and uh, and and the book did nothing. I mean, I I didn't have any kind of national platform. I was just in Queens, inner city church, and the book actually sold very little when it first came out. Hmm. Two hundred copies, hundred copies, and and I just and I, I I was of course like I felt I said no, this is a revelation from God. I just can't figure out why no one's buying it, but no one really knew about it. And then it began to just spread from word of mouth, and then this thing kind of e- emerged. Um, 
because I did a lot of theological work actually with it. I went back to my professors. I knew where pastors were at in terms of cynicism. I did not want to be clumped there. Oh, this is psychology. This mm. is like psychologizing the gospel. I wanted to put a theological framework that was very solid, but yet not too solid that people wouldn't read it, you know, not too right. dense. So I, I spent years working on that. I mean, I went to professors at Princeton Seminary and Gordon Conwell and Eastern Baptist, and I worked very hard at saying, we got, this, has, this has to be an air airshut case, because I know how pastors think. They right. find the biggest reason not to feel or not to be honest with themselves, and they'll slip away and blame me, you know, for, for being, uh, you know, theologically slippery. Hmm. And so I, I think as a result, the book was very, was pretty airshut case, very difficult to argue with loving well right. and grieving when you got a book called Lamentations, <laughs> and two-thirds of the Psalms are laments. And yet we have, you know, who, who learns how to grieve well? You know, who has a theology of grieving? We just stuff it and move on. No class like that in seminary. Yeah, that's all right. We, we, get addic- well, we do addiction, <laughs> and uh, we, get it. we medicate ourselves or our pain. So anyway, I think the, you know, it just kind of grew gradually over time. And so, I mean, I'm still pastoring New Life Fellowship Church, and, and uh, so I'm very limited in what I can do externally. And then we got into monasticism. It kind of led us naturally. To, we slowed down our lives, and I kept exploring this monastic tradition as something. I, 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 I just, I still felt like people were too busy. For some of our listeners who may not be familiar with monasticism or maybe have a, a liturgical background, can you define monasticism? Yeah, let, let me. Maybe I should use the word contemplative spirituality, okay. slowing down to be with God. So not chanting in robes no, per se. No, no, okay. no, no. But it comes out of the monastic tradition. Goes back to Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. It goes back to Elijah in the desert, uh, where he lived and dealt with Ahab and Jezebel. It goes back to John the Baptist. I mean, that's a tradition of monasticism. And Jesus in the desert. And so it's, it's, it's coming out of a deep place with God, out of which you bring a word of God. And silent solitude. And, and so the, the desert fathers were the earliest ones who followed the model of John the Baptist and Moses and went to the desert, because the, the church had become so worldly. In Egypt and Syria in the fourth century, once the Roman Empire became Christian, they, they fled the desert in great numbers to, to find God, to get cleansed of their idolatry, to, to, to hear a word from God so they could save the church. And I think it's a very parallel situation to today that, that mm. we've got to somehow fashion a desert, get to God, so, the, so that we can save the church. There's so much idolatry and worldliness inside the church in us and me that unless we figure out how to get to the desert in the midst of our active lives, I mean, very difficult to bring a word from God with clarity. We bring an American Christianity, and that's real problematic. Say more about fashioning a desert. Well, I, you know, so so for us, what happened? We in two thousand four, early, we took a sabbatical for four months, my wife and I, and uh, we basically committed to live uh, a, a life of silence and solitude. We joined and lived in various monasteries for that time. And entered into a rhythm. We left our tradition as evangelicals. Now, understand, I'm in New York City, so I've got you know, 400,000 cars that pass our building every day. I've got 70,000 people on a square block. I've got enormous density of population and needs. Uh, so silence and solitude is obviously not built into the culture. But um, we had an experience in that four months. We realized that, you know, how busy, you know, you just realize how active our tradition is. We're not good at rest. We're not good at stillness. We're not good at silence. And I think something came so alive in us, Jerry and I, in this four months, that we actually, we seriously wondered if God was calling us to a monastic life. Wow. 
Um, cause we experienced a communion with God, a rhythm as we entered into daily offices. We spent a lot of time with the Trappists. And so we, we as we began to engage in rhythms, monastic rhythms, we did it personally ourselves. As always, let's do it ourselves. And then we'll bring it to our leadership and slowly to our church. And then again, to our surprise, when I, as our church began to live it out, and it shocked us. It really shocked us. We thought the church might throw us out. Huh. Um, but surprisingly, it just exploded something into new life as we brought this contemplative into a, we're, we're kind of a charismatic, high powered, high energy church. Kids coming in do rags, very young, very, again, multiracial. And it surprised us the enormous change that started happening in people just by integrating this into part of the, the, wow. the thing. That's why I, I wrote Emotionality Spirituality, same thing. No one thought anything would happen with the book just because it was kind of like a really far out emotional health with the contemplative and I, you know. And I remember the, you know, the publisher just, uh, it's a little too dense, it's a little too heavy. And they really wanted something much more pop. And I just said, I'm not, I just, I can only write out of what I'm living here right. and just let it go. And, and, uh, again, same thing. I think we're very surprised by the response. Do you think it's just that the, the, the people in the church were so hungry for yeah. that? Yes, absolutely. I think that that's just our church. I think that the response to emotional spirituality stunned us in terms of the hunger for the contemplative. And emotional health together was so enormous that all of a sudden we found ourselves like now there was like this movement thing happening. Mm-hmm. And actually globally, all of a sudden it got like yeah. South Africa and Germany and Russia. Asia. I've been in Asia and seen your material. Have you? Yeah. yeah. So it's been quite surprising to us. And uh, I, I think I, I don't obviously we're not the only ones. I think, you know, in this, the Holy Spirit clearly is moving globally in the church of a hunger away from this American Western super active, consumer-driven, numbers-driven Christianity. And I think that what we are simply is, I think we just, I I probably just expressed it as a pastor. I'm unlikely Larry Crabb or uh, Dan Allender. I'm a local church pastor. I'm not, you know, I'm not a professor. I'm not a therapist. I'm just, I'm a pastor trying to walk, walk this out. Right. So I've actually moved our church, for example, to a rule of life for our membership. But we still have a thousand people. We have well, well over a thousand people in our church. So, but they're committed to a rule of life to be part of our church. So for example, uh, our rule, uh, a rule is a, let me explain what it is. Every, every church membership class is a rule of life. They just don't call it that. It's a trellis or a structure to help you follow Christ. So I join your church because I like the way your church does spirituality. It helps me grow. So I join. So I like your trellis. I like your rule. But most people are unconscious of all that. We decided to make it conscious. So we moved our, our membership uh, to the, a rule of life, and we said, what's our DNA? Who are we? And so for us, for example, in our rule is the first, it says it's broken up in four categories. The first is prayer, and it's got some elements under it. For example, to love uh, Jesus Christ above all else. Uh, secondly is to befriend silence. Third is to, in, to incorporate contemplative practices, daily offices, Sabbath into your life, rhythms of, of offices. And so things like, so things like that. Um, then you got emotional health, you know, uh, practice emotional healthy practices to love well, you know, speak the truth first to yourself, then to others, bridge racial, cultural, economic, and gender barriers. So it's got, it's got a heavy thrust on prayer, heavy thrust on rest, and then it moves to body life, then it moves to mission. So, so it's, a, it's an inward and then uh, an outward. So it, it's not just uh, gazing at the navel, but it's it's getting filled so that you can then spill over, as you yeah, talked about. Yeah, and I think part of our attractiveness has been that we are in New York City and we are very missional. 
uh, I think we're trying to hold that together. Uh, so we've got a medical clinic for the poor. We've got a food pantry that we're probably one of the biggest feeders of poor people in the, in, in, in the city of New York right now. And the city gives us food. We feed so many people. So we're in an area that's low income. And so, and, and we're involved in, in leading people to a deep personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We're very committed to that. So I, I mean, I'm evangelical, the best of evangelicalism, I think we still are and we're committed to. And our tradition has some great strengths to it, but it has some big weaknesses. And the weaknesses do have to do with we're not reflective, we're not good at stillness, and we're not good at silence and rest. And it really colors the way we build our churches, and it impacts the way we do mission. It hurts us. Mm. And I think people are very tired. I think people are very hungry and desperate. So I, I expect, and I think there are people creating new models all over the world right now in the church. I think we're just one uh, in a particular context. But there's clearly the Holy Spirit's moving. There's a, it's amazing to me. Mm. There's some crazy stuff going on, right? Some fluffy <laughs> stuff. But, but, and young, young generations really hungry. Our church has grown younger. I mean, it's amazing to me how many younger people have poured into our church. I, I, I think it's a, it's another, it's another phenomenon we have. So what does that look like with, uh, the, the young guy with the do rag on his head who's from an urban background? What does it look like when he gets a hold of slowing down and contemplative practices? Yeah. Well, everybody's urban in our church. That's where our church is. Okay. So yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I think the human, we were created, everyone needs silence. You were created for a rhythm of silence. And so even if I close a message out, I'll say, we're going to have five minutes of silence now as a church. And I want you to be still and uh, get comfortable here. And we're going to be still before the Lord. We're not just still before nothing. We're going to be still before him. I'll tell you, you hear a pin drop in the place. Mm. And so I've seen as part of our training and part of our discipleship is, but people's souls come alive because mm. we were created for a diet. Of, of silence and even just how we read scripture we savor scripture but we actually meditate on it like the monastics you know lectio divina we we may ponder a phrase all through the day but i'm meditating on the law day and night but it's a very if christ isn't lord of your life you're probably not going to go down this road and, and along those lines unless you've somehow touched on your own brokenness or emotional unhealth there may not be a compelling need to go there into that silence either would you say that's true? Yeah, I think so. I, but you know, I, I find there's two classes of people, Michael. I think there's, I, I meet people that are into um, emotional health. I do, they do therapy. They go to twelve step groups. We have a lot of twelve step people in our group, our church. Um, and, but I meet a lot of people like that, but they don't have any walk with God. Then I meet people who are really into silence and the walk with God, and the Bible, but they don't have any kind of emotional health. They're 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 unaware. They're touchy. They're defensive. To me, the power is you bring them both together. You've got a willingness to go deep beneath that iceberg and do the emotional work, let Christ change all of you. At the same time, you're committed to a passion for God. It's like David. David, that's David, right? He's he's fully expressive emotionally, pouring out his heart, but it's before God. Saul is the opposite. Saul has emotional, he's unaware, and he has, he has a superficial walk with God. Most people I meet, Michael, are not cultivating their personal relationship with Jesus. Hmm. It shocks me. They live off the pastor's sermons. They're living off someone else, what they talk, but they, they're not cultivating their relationship with Jesus. This is my life, my communion with him. And would you say the same is true in light of your story about the average Christian leader, pastor, missionary? Oh, I think we're, we're products of our whole evangelical culture. Yeah, that was certainly my story as well until I crashed and burned. Yeah. So I, I don't think I, I'm finding that you don't have to crash and burn. I think it has to do with I think our discipleship and our formation, the way we do it generally in the church is 
is weak. It's in, it's distorted. It's leaving out large segments of spiritual formation. And you just can't have people do, 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 grow these numbers in a church and think you're going to build a healthy community without profound transformation taking place in people. But I went, but I never did it myself. How am I going to lead a church into it? Hmm. So, you know, I I see it's a new day. I think seminaries are struggling with it now Mm -hmm. and wrestling with it. I think the answer is going to be much more far-reaching than people realize. I think it's going to take a lot more. That's a lot more change. That's why I believe monasticism is a good model for us only because it's a radical shift. It's not just more spiritual disciplines. Oh, add silence, add solitude, add, you know, Bible study. No, no, it's not. A, it's deeper. We, we've got to see ourselves as we've left the world. We're in it, but we've left. And we have a call to the desert to be with God. Yeah. That's my life. So when I leave pastoring, my first work is still to be with God. Oh, That's a, a yeah. far more soulish kind of thing. And that was that was another question I want to ask, is that um, have you seen that people start to do the disciplines almost like a smorgasbord of spiritual practices as a way of just working harder and doing more activity as opposed to doing the inner work? Oh, that, that was my experience prior to this entry into contemplative spirituality. Okay. You know, I just call slowing down to be with God. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I think that in evangelicalism, it's a big problem. We just add discipline. So it's possible to enter into spiritual formation and spiritual discipline without necessarily allowing it to shape your soul and bring transformation. Yes. Okay. Every, every great gift of God, I think, can be misused or become a works righteousness where it loses its very value of why you get into the first place, right? So okay. I see, and I, I see the younger generation, which I'll call now the 20s and teens, and maybe early 30s, I think uh, really disillusioned with the mega church movement, with my generation. You know, I'm in my early 50s. And I, I see them some, I, I see a lot of confusion looking for new models. I see a lot of, I see some folks going off the deep end. I see some jettisoning church altogether. Um, I see this whole emergent model. I don't fully understand it. Um, I see a weak ecclesiology. I have a great love for the church. I believe in the church. Um, but there's a great hunger among the young generation, tremendous hunger for God. I think they need some leadership. I think they need some good theology around them. But I think they're on the right track of saying we want to engage all of our senses. We want to engage authenticity. They're very broken. They're as broken as we were, if not more. And they want real relationships. And that's why emotional health is extremely attractive, extremely attractive. And uh, we actually have a dilemma at our church of so many people getting married that we just were inundated with young people getting married. We don't have the capacity to marry all these people or even train them. It's just, but it's wonderful because they're hungry for healthy marriages. What does, um, again, I'm thinking about Christian leaders and pastors, but um, what on a practical level would be some signs of emotional unhealth? There's the obvious things like addictions and affairs yeah. and burnout, but what uh, are some yeah. of the more subtle things? I, I think um, a variety of things. One is you don't have time to feel because you're too busy. Second is busyness. I, I think the you don't have time to live what you preach. It's a big problem. Hmm. That's, that's a sign from God. You would do something different. Because um, you're, you're starting to lose your integrity. And it's very hard to preach consistently and live it. That takes a reflective life. Marriage, how is your marriage if you're married? Your sexuality, very critical questions. Um if you're denying sadness and 
anger and brokenness inside of you, that's a sign something's not right. If you're dividing the sacred and the secular, that's a problem where you've got your life in compartments. Uh, if you're not Sabbathing, that's a problem. Uh, God just never, it's you doing violence to your soul. You never were meant to work the kind of hours many pastors work. You need a rhythm like God has, right? Of work six days and you have a rhythm of resting. You're Sabbathing. You learn how to Sabbath. And, but I think you can just go, go, go. I mean, what does your Sabbath practice look like? Generally, my Sabbath will begins on uh, Friday night. It goes Friday night generally at dusk to Saturday dusk, or generally to Sunday morning, depending. Uh, but that 24-hour period from Friday night 6 to 6 o'clock Saturday night, which means most of Friday I'm off. Um, I may do some work in the early morning, but I need Friday to do the things of life, you know, whatever, laundry, and go shopping with my wife or whatever, to prepare for Sabbath. But uh, Sabbath is is the highlight of our week. I don't know how we ever live without it. Believe me, Sabbath's not a legalism once you taste the real Sabbath, which has the qualities of delight and rest and stopping work and um, contemplating God. It's, it's just tremendous. So for me, it, it, so my wife and I will go hiking. We live in the city, so we try to get out of the city. Okay. Kids are a little bit older now. We go biking. We'll go hiking in the mountains. We will go to the beach. Uh, we'll go to a museum. Uh, we will go. I love to read. I love to go to libraries, bookstores, listen to music out of borders. I just that's why I just so what you do it gives you life, and uh, yeah, it's, it's our highlight of our week. And then for us, we're committed to a rhythm of daily offices. You know, three four times a day. So we pause to be with God. That's very significant. So we stop our activity to be with Him, commune with Him, a little scripture, whatever it might be. Was that, was that difficult to 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 um, move into and make that a part of your life once you decided to do it? Well, we were fortunate. We, we started with a sabbatical, so we kind of lived the monastic rhythms with the monks and Trappists. So, but coming back and pastoring a church and doing it's quite difficult. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I I don't put a yoke on myself. I miss an office. I'm not like it's not a legalistic thing for me. I miss, it's like missing Sabbath. I, I just I love it. I love pausing. I when I'm doing 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 I. I, I just feel like I'm just – my own soul is crying out for silence and stop, stop. But remember, the goal of daily offices or to be with God is that I'm going to commune with him. And I'm not trying to get something from him. I'm not interceding for the church. I'm, I'm being with him. So it may be it may be saying the Our Father very slowly. It may be – I pray the Psalms all through the day. I love praying the Psalms. Um, maybe reading a bit of a devotional. Something to help me connect with God and have silence. Key. Um. And, but the goal is so that when I'm active the rest of the day, I'm aware of his presence. That's the goal. The goal is not the stopping. The goal is I'm talking to you now, but I'm aware of his presence. Uh, I'm prayerfully present to you. I'm not just like, you know, my mind's on four things right now. That's the goal. That's that's challenging. I don't live that. I'm, I'm growing, you know, I'm on my own right. growth path. But uh, my commitment is to do it while being a, you know, I'm active. I'm not called to be a monk. I'm called to be a pastor of a church. i got four children. I live in New York City. And uh, so God's called me to do some things, and I'm, I'm going to do them. But I'm going to do them at a pace that my interior, my interior life can sustain what I do on the outside. I don't get involved in activity that my soul can't sustain. That's why having a, a large ministry before you're, you have an interior life to sustain it will destroy you. Mm. And uh, you got to watch that. I watch it for myself all the time. So am I getting out, out on a limb here? Mm. Do I have to walk with God to sustain this? 
As, as you're talking, Pete, uh, my soul just comes alive going, wow, that sounds wonderful. I've gotten a little taste of that, uh, and it's always, it's always something I have to really be vigilant about. The average pastor who might be hearing you would, would be rolling their eyes going, yeah, that, that sounds like another world to me. That wouldn't be possible in my cycle, my rhythm. Yes. And even the idea of a rhythm, yeah, right. Um, where would you suggest that somebody start? Obviously, your books are great resources, but mm. what practical steps to begin to slow down and take some of those steps? I think it's really helpful. I think I would start with Sabbath. I think it's a great place to start. And uh, do some reading. A lot of good books out on Sabbath now. A lot of good stuff out there being published. And uh, then I, I would go and I would get out of – I would go visit some retreat centers, non-evangelical, that will give you some different models, slow you down a bit. I like going to a monastery only because it's so different than my world. Mm. And it roots me. Every year I go to the Trappist and I spend a week. And I just enter their life and their rhythm. And so I'm going in November again. And I'm just going to, you know, I just go into my cell. They have a cell. And you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you do eight daily offices a day. Hmm. And 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7.30, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and then like 7.30 and go to bed and get up again at 3. And that kind of rhythm. Uh, it just, you realize how much your soul longs for God. And that feeds you as opposed to something that, you know, you feel chained to or that you have to do. Absolutely. Hmm. It's very different than going to a church growth conference. Yeah. yeah. But I believe in a leadership summit. I think it's a good, like I say, the, the, the leadership summit by Willow Creek. It's a great conference. In its place, it's a great conference. You just can't have that be your whole diet. Hmm. That would be dangerous. But it's a great gift. It's the strength of our tradition. And you can learn some things there. And if you can bring the contemplative to that, that's a wonderful combination. Talk about the gift of limits. We're kind of getting close to that as we talk about uh, the rule of life. But you, in one of your articles I read, you talked about being in China and comparing what was happening there with right. what's happening here and how you learned about the gift of limits just oh, done. Yes. Well, the, well, China as a country is it just seems that they're in an explosive growth. And uh, if you're at Wendell Berry stuff, you're uh -huh. Wendell Berry? You know, he's really into limits and particular local places. And, but, uh, I, I, I think the gift of limits is one of the critical issues of rebellion against God. And it goes back to the Garden of Eden when God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree of the garden you want, but don't eat from this one. God sets a limit and it puts the tree right in the middle of the garden. Just no explanations. Don't eat it. <laughs> and it's a limit. And I, I, th everything in us just wants to cross limits. And then we know the same thing happened with Jesus in the wilderness. The devil set, the devil tried to get Jesus to go beyond his limits. He could, he could have turned those stones to bread. He could have jumped down from the temple. He, he could have done it. He all, but he didn't. He waited. He, he, he received his gift of limits. I think John the Baptist understood limits. He, hmm. when they were trying to get him jealous about Jesus' emerging ministry, he said, a man can receive only what he receives from heaven. John three twenty seven. And I know from my own life, limits is probably one of the, most critical spiritual issues for me of mm. sin mm. because I cross those limits. I think I'm more than I am. I can do more. You know, I, I can, I can, I'm, and, and I can receive only what's given me from heaven and I need sleep. I need rest. I need rhythm. I need balance. I am not a machine. I'm a human. I'm a person. And when I think I'm more than I am, I cross over line. I'm in the enemy's territory and 
so it cut this gift of limits touches something so profound. And in both of your books, you talk about the top ten signs of uh, unhealthy spirituality. Isn't the it's living without limits one of them? It is. It is. Okay. And I, yeah, and I think I think the idea of just I really wonder about our church. I always struggle with what is God's call for our church in terms of like growth. So we bought a building five and a half years ago that's for six and a half million dollars, a quarter of an acre. Wow. That's it. Quarter of an acre, half a block. And it needed three to four million dollars worth of work. And we're basically a lower income church. And so the first thing they wanted to do when we bought this church was, hey, we need to add a service. The money. They're thinking the money. People need the money. And evening service. And New New York's a night culture. Well, at the time, I was the primary preacher at New Life. And uh, But the gift of limits, I knew that if I was going to have the kind of quality marriage that God's asked me to have and the kind of walk with God he's called me to have, I, I wasn't going to do a third service at night with me being the primary preacher. So we said, we've said no for five and a half years. This In three weeks, we're going to launch that third service. It took us five and a half years to get there because now we have a preaching team of four. I'll only preach there once a month. I go, I, I, I accept my limits. No staff person is going to beat all the services. You know, we worked it out. Our church is at a place of stability and health where we can add a few hundred more people and still be a church, still be a community, still be in, you know, in small groups, and nobody's going to get burnt out and wiped out by it. Hmm. But waiting is hard. Yeah. But you could have, but at what expense? That's exactly right. And God's timing is a big question. It sounds like um, this just might be one of those things that, duh, you know, why doesn't this happen? But uh, that your spirituality affects you organizationally as opposed to the other way around, that the organizational policies and protocols affect your spirituality. Yeah, it's probably it's both ends. I'm, one of my, my cutting edges of growth right now is what does emotionally healthy leadership look like? What does it mean to run a relatively large organization where you have to hire and fire and set human resource policies and do staff meetings? What does it look like to apply all this to running a really healthy organization? Hmm. And uh, so I'm learning that. I've been in the last two years. Uh, I've really entered into that space because I realized I had a disconnect. I did it in mentoring, but I didn't do it in running the church. Hmm. That was another level. So what are a couple things you've learned about the... It's really hard. <laughs> it takes enormous character. I had to go back and do a round of therapy hmm. because I had to get in touch with why couldn't I let certain people go? What was that about? And... I realized how important it was that people would move towards me. And when you're the leader and you can do the right thing, not everybody's going to move towards you. So I got in touch with a new level of my own differentiation level, my own need for validation from other people. Hmm. And I realized I was making, I was lying. I was lying a lot by say, you're not doing a good job. I wouldn't talk about it. I was lying. Basically I wasn't telling you the truth, but I, I, I just, I didn't want to hurt you. And so I have you in a position maybe that you're not functioning at well and other people are getting hurt, but I'm letting it go on because I like you and we're friends. So I got into the whole issue, one of, of honesty and clarity that I'm not into a corporate church, but I'm into good stewardship. And, we're, and if you're not doing your role well, this is not a job for life, that the church, the leader has a responsibility to make sure either you get repositioned but we're, we're not lying and saying you're doing a job, which you're not. And secondly, there's a real confusion about dual relationships. 
I'm your friend. I'm also your pastor. I'm also your boss. Uh, I no longer think that's a good model in most cases. I think you need clarity of, of what's the relationship. And I realize I, I wanted to be a friend, but I don't want to be people's. I don't want to be the leader of the church where I got to, I got to now give you your job evaluation and maybe let you go. Hmm. And uh, so I think dual relationships in a community are very complex. It's not like a corporate world. Uh, but I would recommend that the senior leader needs to be the leader. And if you want to be friends with everybody, then go get another, go do something else. I don't think you can lead if you want to be liked by everybody. I, I don't think it's the right position. Your church is going to get crippled eventually. So back to emotional health, you've got to do serious work on yourself to lead with integrity, to lead from within, to have the courage to speak truth, to quit the craziness that goes on in churches. If you want to be popular, really, it's the wrong work to be in. Hmm. Now, you can preach and everyone thinks you're wonderful. But to lead well, that's a different story. Hmm. So I'm learning. I, I'm in my, I, I, it'll, it'll be, I think I'm going to ponder and keep working on it for the next three to four years. Then I'll write it down. I, I, think it's, I think it needs to be written. What does it mean to lead in an emotionally healthy way? I, hmm. I think it's a gigantic. I would love to read that book. Sphere. You're going to push a lot of buttons with that, though, because uh, there's the, the paradox is, is if I'm in leadership, I don't have to deal with those things. I can avoid my inner life, and I can, right. I can just make those decisions. That's right. And I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a corporate CEO. No, you're not. You're first a man or a woman of God. That's who you are. Hmm. We're fundamentally, we, 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 we're, we're contemplatives, but we're leaders. Hmm. That's why I like the early church uh, fathers like Augustine and Ambrose and free church history. A lot of the, in the first three, four centuries, the, the bishops and the leaders were monks first. And they were leaders and they were theologians writing the Nicene Creed and other documents like that. They, they were deep thinkers in scripture. They were monastics and they were leaders. I said, well, that's the combination. I, I think that's a great model for us today. We don't need CEOs. I don't think that's the good, I don't, that's not mm. the right model. But stewardship is. But I think that line of, that line of corporateness, I, I, I don't think that's a biblical model. Mm. I think it's damaging. Before I moved our church to a, a rule of life, I moved our pastoral staff to a rule of life. And we agreed together. I didn't impose anything. I said, let's agree on our rule of love. You can download it free off the internet and take a look at it. And I said, let's agree. It took six months to do, to form it, formulate it. And let's agree to it. This is how we're going to live our lives with integrity. And then we made it available to the whole church. We're going to model this for you as a church. And, uh, and that was a place to start. Got ownership. So, for example, as a pastoral staff, we committed to every third Wednesday of the month, we would have a day alone with God of silence. Not for sermon preparation, not for teaching, but if you're going to be on the staff team, you'll spend a third Wednesday with no, no meetings. That's our big meeting day at our church. For staff, no meetings. Go be alone with God or you're going to be fired. <laughs> it's, true. it's true. And so you may have a growing ministry in your area, but you're not walking on our rule. We will let you go. And we did. Absolutely. So um, because we really do believe that it's out of our lives that we're going to lead. So same thing with your marriage. You're going to, you're going to really invest in your marriage. Uh, and you're not going to skim on that. We're not going to, and if you're going to skim on it, you're a bad model. Well, then what are you leading? I, it just doesn't make sense. So that was a big cultural shift for us. I think it was a staff team and the elders did the same thing. And then we moved to the whole church. So it's slow. We, 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 we you got to move into a church very slowly. The key is it begins with you. What do you need to slow down? What do you need? to do the kind of work in your interior so that you're leading from the inside out. So spiritual direction and therapists at times and 
um, you know, retreat centers, whatever, whatever you are in this season, you get resource, take responsibility and lead yourself. What are some of the books, uh, in addition to therapy, spiritual direction, yeah. retreats that have that have been most helpful to you to help you with your interior life and yeah. awareness? I, I've I've really enjoyed uh, Parker Palmer. Uh huh. You know, let your life speak. I think it's one of his great books. I love Thomas Merton, New Seeds of Contemplation. That's been great. Of course, I love Henry now, and like many others, his writings are I think very very rich. Um, that they've been very helpful. I, I think we actually learned quite a bit from the Quakers. Uh. We actually learned to write questions from the Quakers, from Parker Palmer's organization, Circles of Trust. We wanted to try to write study guides that would get at the soul, that would do Bible study, but kind of get at the soul. Mm-hmm. So I think we've, we've been influenced a lot by Parker Palmer, I think, in that, that whole movement. Clearly, the, you know, I'm, I'm always reading the Desert Fathers. I'm always, I'm always there. I'm reading John, uh, John of the Cross had a big influence on me. John Paul II, his work on theology of the body and sexuality has had an enormous influence on my wife and I. Um... And so these are all informed us. Emotionally health, emotional health and spirituality needs, leads you naturally to a very strong marriage and family ministry as well. And it takes you into the arena of sexuality as part of discipleship as well. So it just keeps opening up larger and larger arenas as you get deeper into it. It's not just, oh, these are cute ideas. Let me add an yeah. idea or two. And this is like, no, this is like your whole life. Your whole paradigm of who you are is now changing and shifting. Sexuality is obviously a hot topic in our culture, and it's often a place where Christian leaders fall. Um, say more about this idea of sexuality as part of our discipleship. You obviously mean something more than just not sinning sexually. Yeah, I, th- I think when you when we talk about our, our sexuality, we're talking about our relationship with Jesus. We're married to Christ. I'm, we're, when you become a Christian, I'm married to Jesus. And my marriage to my wife is going to end uh, when I see him face to face. It's simply a signpost. It's, it's a pointer. And so spiritual formation is all about this union, this oneness with Jesus Christ, who is my husband and who, with whom I am one. And so, therefore, my sexuality is such that I'm, 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 my, with my wife, I commune with her just like I would commune with Christ. We have Our sexual relationship is a, is a taste of my relationship with Jesus, which means that love must be free. It must be total, it must be faithful, and it must be fruitful. So I don't, I don't use my wife because I'm frustrated or I'm, I'm feeling physically I've got to get a release or I'm anxious, so I go to her, and thus I commit adultery with her. I use her. I don't commune with her. Mm-hmm. I don't treat her as a person. I don't love her freely. And so sexuality brings out all of our deep issues about using people as objects, and spouses do it all the time uh, and have very immature sexual relationships, Most very few very, very few marriages have healthy sexual relationships because they don't, they don't work on it. They don't even talk about it. They don't even know what to talk about. Mm. And so we don't disciple people in that. I think it's just part of getting deep beneath the iceberg and helping people uh, Do you have on. any teaching or resources that you've done around that area? Was there a conference, I think, that you mentioned? Yeah, well, you know, we've, we've got – in fact, in our website, you can listen to a few messages we've done on uh, theology, or good messages on, from Ephesians called your, your, your Body, Your Sexuality, and Your God. And uh, it's an exposition on Ephesians 5 when Paul speaks about, you know, man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. And then he says, oh, but I'm not speaking about, I'm speaking about Christ and the church. And this is a great mystery, he says. Mm-hmm. And he says, he makes the connection immediately of mar- earthly marriage and Christ and the church. Because that is the image of what it means to be a Christian. And uh, so, yeah, we're, 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 we've been working on this for quite a bit. And this year we're actually going to, 
try to do some more stuff at our pastor's conference. Yeah, it is. It's it's a great... I I think if we can get to the pastor's sex life, we'll get to the whole church. Because all the issues in a marriage are in that bedroom. All the issues of their maturity are in that bedroom. All the issues of differentiation, emotional health, their contemplative life is all in that bedroom. I think you just got a lot of people's attention. (laughs) (laughs) For those who weren't listening closely. (laughs) My last question, this this has really intrigued me, again, from your your top ten list of emotionally unhealthy signs. What does it mean to die to the wrong things? Uh, Well, we die to things like joy in our marriage. I die to a wonderful relationship with Jesus so I could be working for him. He never asked me to die to my marriage and die to... Uh, you know, him enjoying him die to the great outdoors, enjoying the gifts of life, enjoying my children. Those are dying to the wrong things. So we get this idea uh, confused when people say we're supposed to die to self. Uh, you, you die to your sins. Die to your defensiveness. Die to your pride. Die to your egocentricity. Your narcissism. Yes. Die to your gossiping. Your judgmentalism. Die to that, please. But don't die to the right things. But not the gifts of life from God. That is the tragedy. We died to all the wrong things. Got them all mixed up. Hmm. Pete Scazzaro, thank you so much you. Uh, for taking the time. Bless you. Bless the Emotionally Healthy Ministry. If anyone is interested in more resources or to find out more about Pete and his books, you can visit online at www.emotionallyhealthy.org. Thanks so much. Bless you. Thank you. God bless you, Michael. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.